0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be with everybody this morning. And for people who are joining us for the first time or one of the first times, a big welcome to you. and. Uh, we're been, we've been studying this winter and now spring, we've been studying the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness of breathing, one of the more uh, complete set of instructions that the Buddha gave during his many years of teaching, some 2,500 years ago in Northern India. And today, we you might have noticed, in the guided meditation, we took a different um, pathway into the later instructions. Out of those 16 instructions, we did the mindfulness of compassion practice, right? Keeping compassion in mind creatively. There's a lot of creativity in the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. These are the four qualities of the heart. And one way or another, we find our way back to an authentic attitude, uncontrived attitude of kindness, or today we did compassion, and then using images or words, we keep it in mind until it feels clear enough, we trust the attitude of compassion enough that we stop trying to do it, and we just relax and in a sense abide in that pervading, wholesome, radiant quality of compassion, like a light, a warm, tender-hearted light that just shines touching the experience of our body, touching the our own heart and mind, touching the world and everyone in it. But it's like I mentioned in the guided meditation, it's a bit of a confidence move where we have to bring up some memories maybe, or bring up your puppy that It's hurting, and the compassion flows very naturally toward that four-legged friend. And you remember that, and in remembering that relationship with that particular being, or whoever, whatever, then you're able, the mind is able to make the simple step of, I care about that being, to, oh, this is the experience of caring. This is that quality the Buddha calls, or we call, compassion. Oh, let me keep it in mind. And it has a felt sense, like a actual blossoming in a way of the heart, tenderheartedness, that just has a nature of felt sense of expansion, boundlessness. The very uh, experience of real love, spiritual love, is is that it doesn't have boundaries. It might start by remembering a particular relationship with a particular person. But the more we sense the love or the compassion, the more we sense that it includes everything and everyone. And it's a practice like everything else, and we get better at it when we do it. And it's a little bit like I sometimes joke about mindfulness practice. It's amazing that we have a mind and we have a present moment but we haven't been interested in it and in a similar way it's amazing that we have these this capacity for these beautiful attitudes of kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity but we haven't been that interested in them and they they feel so good when the mind is established in compassion it just feels really good i mean we might we will be sensitive to the very real truth of suffering but it's an enlivening attitude. It feels good, it feels healing to be in any of those four attitudes of love, basic friendliness, kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And then the, it's a very uh, natural thing when we are we have some confidence in the boundlessness of compassion, or any of the four, right? And, and having some sense of resting abiding in a radiant inclusive love whatever it is however strong that might be then it's a relatively easy step into the third set of instructions that we've been studying so if you don't remember it's good to memorize these 16 so i'll just go through all 16 right so first we're establishing mindfulness now we didn't do the first eight today so we're aware of breathing in and breathing out, right, in an exclusive way. So we have to drop our attention to everything else for the first few instructions, right? Just aware of the physicality, breathing in and out, and discerning whether it's relatively long or short. So that requires an even more close tracking of breathing in and out. To do that a discernment, is it a longer breath, a shorter breath, a rougher breath, a smoother breath? And then when we've dropped the world and we've just been attending to the physicality of breath, then we're already, the mind is already somewhat secluded, so then we open to the whole body. So the Buddha says, we train ourselves breathing in, experiencing the whole body, breathing out, experiencing the whole body. And then, breathing in, calming the body, breathing out, calming the body. And that's the first four. It's a healing of the mind and body. And then, with that kind of being more in the moment, then wisdom is aware of the flow of the moment. And that really is the gateway to joy. That's the fifth. Breathing in, experiencing joy. Breathing out, experiencing joy. That the moment, you're not doing it and I'm not doing it, but the moment is alive. It's moving. The body's moving, the mind is moving, the mental activity rather is moving. Everything's alive. And that kind of when when the heart opens to that, it's like, oh, it's enlivening. Joyful interest, rapture even, the sense of flow, energetic movements, which is what we call rapture. And this is just the mind recognizing how alive, and feelings of lightness and buoyancy, and then that matures into ease, the next step. Breathing in, experiencing the ease of the heart, breathing out, experiencing the ease of the heart, then noticing the activity of mind from this place of contentment, noticing oh yeah, there's thinking, there's experiencing, there's perceiving, there's this so-called mental activity, and then the quieting of that mental activity precisely because the mind is related to the mental activity with a lot of dispassion, a lot of space. So yeah, it's just thought. And that's the second set of four, where really wisdom is really looking at the activity of the mind, just like with the first set of four, looking at the activity of the body. Now with the third, and this is where the compassion practice, if you like doing metta, loving kindness, or compassion, karuna practice, then you can do that, get to as best you can, that state of the space of love, the space of compassion, And then recognize this space of love is the space of the mind. Oh, Breathing in, experiencing the space of the mind, the space of the loving mind. Breathing out, gladdening that, appreciating that, stilling that, quieting that, concentrating that, liberating that space of the mind. Seeing its selfless nature, not self. Love is not personal, it's there, it's beautiful, it's healing. But I'm not doing it. There isn't a person doing it. It's the nature of the mind to be inclusive in that way. We forget it, you know, and we live in pretty narrow places a lot of the time, right? But that doesn't mean it isn't there. It's just unrecognized. It remains unrecognized a lot of the time because we operate in our fixed views or self-centered views or fears with our fears and our greed and that really limits, restricts the nature of our knowing mind when we're identified with these ideas, basically, of who we are and what's going on. But when we get out of that, then we're really doing that third set of four instructions, experiencing the mind, appreciating the space of the mind, the knowing mind, the loving mind, concentrating it, liberating it, really seeing it empty of self, empty of selfing, empty of self-centeredness. That's a realization that whatever is there in the mind, it's nature and not self. And, you know, the way insight works, the sort of learning, the deep spiritual learning, seeing what we haven't seen before, and this is true anytime with learning, learning happens when there's contrast. So if we're in that really beautiful, empty, refined state, then from that place, it's really easy, relatively easy, to learn about the nature of the mind. So from that point, then, you know, we study. This is the last set of four. And what are we studying? So the work the changes from, you know, uh, one trains oneself, breathing in, experiencing the mind, ex- gladdening the mind. Now it goes to contemplating. So there are four contemplations. We're contemplating impermanence, Contemplating dispassion, contemplating um, cessation, contemplating letting go. And that's the last four instructions. And of course, we can, it's ideal, like to do this in a place where the mind is very quiet, very beautiful, very refined. But we can do it, it's good to do it all day long, even when our mind isn't so <laughs> settled, right? So, but. You know, it's more impactful in terms of transforming and uprooting the habits of our, the unhelpful habits of our mind. The more concentrated, the more settled the mind, the more profound the work, spiritual work we're doing when we bring impermanence to mind, notice the dispassion, notice the cessation, and notice the letting go. So I wanna talk about these steps today. With our remaining time. So, of course, you know, the point of the fourth set of four instructions is to address in a very deep way the truth of suffering. And that's, you know, that's the issue at hand. It's always a clarifying question. What's the problem we're trying to solve in life? and you know we realize that my heart's burdened and tight and when my heart feels burdened and tight and anxious and fearful and needy then i'm uh sort of in the mode it sort of activates me in ways that aren't helpful and it it might be good just to review when and i listen to uh um, on Being, some of you know that program hosted by Krista Tippett's been on public radio for a long time now. It's a good show, and she interviews various spiritual religious, um, in this case, uh, a, a psychology, uh, a clinical psychologist um, named Christine Runyon, and it's really good just to sort of review some of the basic <clears throat> principles of Western psychology, you know. and. And just the the how the stress, the autotomic nervous response operates, you know, we get numb, we lose the capacity for empathy, our thinking gets rigid, we ruminate, we get dysregulated, we become less uh, productive. These are some of the things she mentioned this morning. Now given what's been happening this last year in small and big ways in our lives, this should sound somewhat familiar, right? And financial stress and the stress in our communities as we have seem to be taking a more honest look at racism in our communities and just the destruction of the COVID virus and all the death and all the sickness and just the anxiety of having to walk around with masks on and, all of the other things that have been moving in our lives recently, right? So we, we experience, probably to some degree, all of us, this unavoidable activation of stress. And the stress gets chronic, You know, where we're so in that sort of tight place that we're, our own tightness is the stress we're managing. <laughs> You know, and how do we manage our tightness? We get tight about it. And you see that basic formula of being tight and then noticing we're tight and getting tight because we're tight, that's a very simple way of talking about what in Buddhism we call samsara, the cycles of suffering, how suffering begets suffering. That's the problem we're trying to solve. We see it in ourselves, hopefully we observe it in others, we see it in our society, and we see it expressing itself in really tragic ways where the truth of suffering collectively and individually causes us to plant seeds for more suffering. When we're tight, we tend to act out in ways that make ourselves and others tight. And on and on it goes. And just to begin to do this work, as you see with the first eight steps in the Buddhist instructions, but even before we get to the 16 steps, like I'm sure you've noticed, the first step is not easy (laughs) for the Buddha. Right at the beginning, if you don't remember, the Buddha says, okay, friends, establish mindfulness to the fore. Well, that's pretty challenging. Just for the mind to be interested in recognizing, oh, this is being known, breathing in is being known, right? When we're activated, it's not so easy to do that. So we need to take a deep breath, right? Some of these simple things we've learned, and again, this person Christine Runyon reviewed, but this is probably not new to any of us. Take a deep breath and really pay attention to the exhalation especially, because that that just triggers the Releasing response, the parasympathetic nervous system, just being caught, con- just exhaling in a deeper conscious way, right? And there's so many other things. Like one of the things we do a lot in our practice that this uh, psychologist uh, mentioned is just naming our experience because it creates a little space. Oh, my mind is really anxious, right? Like in, in the early. Buddhist teachings, it's like, Mara, I see you. I don't know if any of you know that from the suttas, from the discourses. But even the Buddha, this awakened person, you know, when old psychological patterns, internal or around him, difficult stuff arose, the Buddha would say to himself, Oh, Mara, I see you. Yeah, that's what's showing up right now. That's how it is right now. Whether it's an internal emotional pattern or an external thing happening in the room in the community around you, oh yeah, this is what's happening. And there's something really that that helps that regulation, that sort of settling, just to name the way it is. Oh, this is what's happening. And it's not about, uh, it's not encouraging a numbness or a disassociation or kind of the shadow of like, what well, does not matter? Because it's just this being known. So it's not that it's actually helping us connect. When we name what's going on. When we know what's going on, then the heart can actually choose to be open and to feel what it feels like that this is going on. Oh, I'm really anxious. I'm really excited. I'm really hopeful. I'm really afraid. I'm really humiliated. I really want this person to like me. That's what's happening now. And it feels like this. I really want that person to see me, recognize me, like me, This is what that feels like. It's so grounding just to simply name. And this is a big part of the Buddhist tradition, is whether you actually name, like silently in your mind, you use those words, oh, this is being known. Or you just recognize, you just notice. But it's really important for us to have that that sort of spacious acknowledgement, this is what's happening. It's so grounding. And another thing this uh, psychologist mentioned today, which again is just built into the Buddhist teachings, it's so important that we don't just keep looking at what's difficult, but we also need to um, acknowledge what's pleasant. Because it breaks the cycle of rumination and spinning, you know, when we're caught up in our anxiety, in our dependence or neediness or whatever it might be. Just to ask ourselves, well, what's around in the present moment that I can be aware of that would be pleasant? Well, maybe I'll take a walk around the block, and I'll notice the sunshine, and I'll notice the sounds. Or maybe I'll put on a piece of music that I like, and I'll notice how pleasant that is. Because when we're in our self-centered dramas, not always, but a lot of them are self-centered dramas, really we're in this vortex of... Looking at pain, something that's painful, reacting to it, which is painful, looking at pain, reacting to it, look, and it just keeps going. And that can be the rumination or the cycling, the spinning. So to just have a cup of tea and to really notice the warmth of the cup and how comfortable it is to be sitting looking out the window and to taste the sweetness of the honey, something as simple as that can break that cycle. Because it's somehow, if we have this sort of overlapping view that I'm going to hell, that nothing works, that everything's bad, and then we, on purpose, notice something that's pleasant and notice the response, the natural organic response to pleasantness, which is to go, ah, this is pleasant. Right? Because just even if it's brief, when we're in a pleasant experience, with a pleasant experience, there's some momentary contentment. Like, right now, for this moment, I don't need things to be different. And that just as a reminder, can be a potent reminder of, oh, this is what it feels like not to be struggling to make things different. So it's just a skillful use of pleasantness. Even touching ourselves in a wholesome way, you know, rubbing our chest or just touching in this way or. You know, affection, if you <laughs> have somebody you're living with where you don't have to, you can, you know, ask for that kind of physical affection. If we were some of the other primates, we'd pick the lice out of each other's fur, you know, or something like that. But we have these ways that are self, are, are, that are soothing for our nervous system and being in connection with another human being or a four-legged being. Can really help in these ways, just the physical affection. And these are just getting us to the place where we can do the other, you know, 16 steps that I just ran through for all of us, right? Because if we're activated and then we pick up the first instruction to establish mindfulness to the fore and to be aware of the breath coming in and the where of the breath going out, and to track it with enough discernment to know whether it's a longer or shorter, a rougher or smoother breath, a more usual or a more refined breath, we're just not going to be able to do it. Because we're basically living as a cornered animal, well, you can't ask a cornered animal to be aware of even something as simple as the breathing in and breathing out. Because what a corner animal wants is they want to escape the threat even if the threat is something that they're imagining, because the mind doesn't really know the difference between what it imagines and what is what we would say you know is true in our consensual reality. like there's actually a predator out to get me. right? We don't really know the difference. That's what a nightmare is. right Whether it's a waking nightmare or one that happens when we're asleep, the physiological response is really the same. You know, the stress response. Fight, flight, freeze. Someone even added recently, follow. Like, tell me what to do. (laughs) It's, I think, related to that freeze where we don't know what to do. And so anybody who asserts they know what to do, we we tend to follow them. (laughs) Which maybe says something about our politics these days. But this is the you know, the truth of all of us being activated. So I want to spend a little time before we end just talking about the last tetrad that I mentioned already where we're contemplating impermanence, contemplating dispassion, contemplating cessation, and contemplating relinquishment or letting go. And obviously... This is the most subtle practice that we're we're ever gonna do in practice, but we wanna think of it not just something that we do in the quietness of our meditation, but something that we can develop confidence in all day long, and that will really support those more refined moments when the mind, heart, body is really settled down and the quality of awareness is pretty pure just like those deeper, more quiet moments of doing the practice of looking at impermanence, this passion, cessation and letting go really supports the daily life practice. Because it, it really comes to what I was talking about right at the beginning when I reviewed the refuges, Buddha knowing Dhamma. That the whole premise of the path the Buddha set in motion was this realization from his own life that when I cultivate that stability of present moment awareness and then I use reality, like I show up to reality with that balanced, sensitive uh, continuity of present moment awareness, it's the combination of Buddha being intimate with Dhamma that leads to insight. So we need Dhamma, we need the way it is And just like in terms of our daily life, we we don't need to be afraid of the messiness, and the painfulness, and the humiliation of seeing the way it is. And um, like I mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, when we're more honest about complicity, and this isn't specific to like myself as a white person a male, a straight male, um, we're all complicit in different ways, of course, in the suffering that's spinning, in the injustice, in the oppression. Right. So we, we it's just about getting close and being real so that we can respond and discover the freedom in that responsivity. And this is really what Buddha knowing dhamma is all about we often think of it as something that just happens when we're in that proverbial cave in the mountains nobody bothering us perfect conditions you know with tranquil animals around and somebody bringing us food and you know and we're just doing the sort of stereotypic work of meditation but you know in the traditions it's always about then well, what happens then, how does that, what does that insight look like when you come back into the complexity of relationship, into the historic trauma that we're all carrying, having, you know, because we're in this world where life eats life, where power rules, right? And because of the predominance of the survival instinct, people and other beings do whatever they have to, in moments at least, to survive. And often that is perpetuating violence on others, taking advantage of others. It's always been this way. And the only thing that can make things better is to cultivate a very honest, clear-minded, open-hearted relationship. And it's this insight that happens with the studying of impermanence, studying, contemplating, dispassion, cessation, and letting go, that really help. Because that word, let's just look at that word dispassion or disenchantment first. And that may be all we have time for today. And we'll come back to this last set of four instructions next week too, so we're not done yet. But you know, when we choose to study the truth of impermanence, everything's uncertain, it's unreliable, it's ephemeral, Nothing is fixed, whether it's an idea in my mind or a relationship in my life. All relationships, even the most so-called stable or wholesome relationships, they're an unfolding process. They're not fixed. And in that sense, they're not reliable. They're not governable. You may think you can govern the relationship you have with your child or your partner or your pet or your job but it's fundamentally, essentially ungovernable and unreliable and uncertain. And we're always surprised when, it, <laughs> when that's revealed to us, like, I didn't see that coming. But if we had really been a good student of life, we wouldn't have been as surprised because that's the fruit of being a good student of life. Nothing surprises us. Because when we study life, the essential insight is Anything can happen, right? Anything can happen. And there are so many causes and conditions in play that we're oblivious to. We don't even know what's going to happen. Sometimes we have some intuition. Sometimes we can kind of sense what's in motion, but it's never perfect sensing. So what is dispassion? Because it can, again, it can sound like, oh, I don't care anymore. Life is so ephemeral, so insubstantial. So uncertain that I know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to stop caring about life because I can't count on it. So why bother? But it's really like this insight into this passion, it's really understanding um, that we don't have to get tight because things are uncertain and unreliable. So it's like another option. If you don't like to call that dispassion or disenchantment, but it's ba- the dispassionate disenchantment is just pointing to you know what? Just because things are changing and ephemeral and uncertain, does my heart have to be tight about that? Let me just see. Can I relax with the truth of unreliableness and ungovernableness and uncertainty? Yeah. I can relax. It's always been that way. Seems like it's going to always be that way. Maybe it's okay that it's this way. So that's what dispassion is. It's the re- it's a insight. It's the realization that the truth of change doesn't necessarily have to lead to being tight. And that's what that's something we can explore all day long. You go to work Something, somebody flips the table and the day, way, the day you thought you were going to have isn't going to happen. And you could just like contemplate dispassion. Do I need to get tight? I can get tight. Be totally understandable if I get tight because this thing happened that I didn't expect. But maybe I don't have to be tight. And this is something that folks who can stay for the small groups this morning, you might want to share both when you were somewhat aware of change the uncertainty the unreliableness of life and you to some degree saw that choice in your mind i can get tight or i can i can just let it be what it is it doesn't mean you didn't choose to get tight because sometimes the force of habit even when you see there's a choice the mind still goes here towards getting tight because that's its habit to freak out, to strike back with aversion, to, you know, all the different expressions of being tight. But this is the beginning, just to see that there's an option here. When we begin to wake up, when Buddha is intimate with Dhamma, and in this case, intimate with the truth of change, right? then we see that there's a choice to get tight with aversion, reactivity, numbness, closing down, freezing up, Or to just be nimble and relaxed and responsive and do what needs to be done to take care of everybody. And we call that a dispassion. The dispassion is towards the impermanence, not a dispassion towards life, responsibility, taking care of everyone, right? We're dispassionate. We're okay with impermanence. We're disenchanted, meaning... We're no longer enchanted with the idea that things are the way I want them to be, the way that they should be. I think they should be, right? I don't live live with enchantment anymore. I'm grounded, I'm real. So we have to kind of really work on how we're gonna use those words of disenchantment and dispassion. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.